This is ACM Bytecast, a podcast series from the Association for Computing Machinery, the world's largest educational and scientific computing society. We talk to researchers, practitioners, and innovators who are at the intersection of computing research and practice. They share their experiences, the lessons they've learned, and their own visions for the future of computing. I am your host, Rashmi Mohan. If you accidentally discovered your new favorite song while out on your morning run today, you'll have our next guest to thank. Munia Lalmas is a director of research and head of tech research at Spotify, where she leads a team of researchers across the globe solving problems in the domain of content personalization and discovery. She has a rich career in studying user engagement and holds an honorary professorship at University College London. She is an author and a regular committee chair on many top-tier conferences like SIGIR and Wisdom. Munia, welcome to ACM Bytecast. Thank you. Munia, I'd love to lead with the question that I ask all my guests. If you could please introduce yourself and talk about what you currently do and also give us some background and insight into what drew you into this field of work. Okay, thank you. I'm Munia, based at Spotify. I'm a researcher. I've always been a researcher, first in academia, now in industry. My passion has always been evaluation and user engagement. This is a very important problem in many online industries, especially around personalization. Why this excites me is it's a hard problem. Everything is becoming more and more online. Personalization is getting bigger and bigger and doing it right remains a hard problem. And not just that, knowing whether we're doing it right or not. So that's why user engagement is something that I get up every morning. Oh, how can I solve a few things? That's super exciting. But I'm wondering if I could go back even further. Like what drew you into computing? Ooh, this was a long time ago. I was just good at math. I love math. I love the abstraction level that you can get with math. For example, with respect to algebra, logic, geometries, and so on. At that time, if you were good at math, you were going more to a career related to become a teacher. And I was not sure this is what I wanted to do. And there was this opportunity. It was called where I grew up in Algeria, Informatic. So people that were quite good at math, many of us ended up into this area of informatic computing. And we are still there. Um, That's fantastic. Did you always imagine that you would get into computing research or as you sort of delved into your, you know, academic pursuits, you found that there were problems that really that you wanted to solve because you didn't have the answers to them? Yeah, I didn't know much about the whole area of research at that time when you start as an undergraduate student. I start to get into it in Algeria when you study is about five years. And at the end of those five years, you do your master. It's the equivalent of a master project. It's one year research. At that time, the hot topic were actually expert system. And this is where I got really interesting is started to think about what challenge and how to approach those challenges. So not just applying things but okay, we don't know how to do this. This is a problem we need to solve and how to 
go on about it by being rigorous, by doing a lot of reading, understanding what are the latest into state of the art and so on. And this is what drew me more into research as part of this final year project, which then brought me to do master. This is where I moved to Scotland to do my master of applied science at the University of Glasgow. And then I ended up doing the PhD. So it, it was not planned, but it kind of followed this excitement I got at the end of my equivalent of a bachelor's degree, for example, in the UK. I like how you call out those traits of, you know, doggedness, the need to sort of be rigorous about the kind of problems you're trying to solve, the need to read more and investigate more. Such classic traits for anybody who's, whether they want to do a PhD or just is interested more in researching the areas that they're working on. Going back to the point that you made earlier, which is around information retrieval, and you were saying that the problems are just becoming bigger. How do you feel like your research interests have evolved over time? So when I started information retrieval, actually, it was a coincidence. I did my master at the Glasgow University. I did it actually on formal methods, again, the, the strong link with my interest in math and in particular logic. And it was like, okay, I'm interested in a, in a PhD. And it happened at the University of Glasgow, there was a very strong information retrieval group. And at that time, one of the big topic is how to use logics into the building better information retrieval system. So that is how I ended up in information retrieval. And I stayed there. So at that time, we didn't have the big search engine. Information retrieval was still, uh, for example, a big intersection with library information studies and so on. And then with search engines, things got really, really big. You have suddenly everybody with an information need. It can be very precise. It can be very vague. And so satisfying a user is not easy. It's very, very, very wide and so on. And so this is where I got more and more interested about the evaluation. So less about the algorithm, but it's always easy to return results. They may be to some extent good enough but is how do we even know if it's good enough? And so I move more into the evaluation of the results. And evaluation is a big part of information retrieval research. Anybody that is into this area as a researcher or applied researcher or engineer will always say, okay, how do we know that what we're returning to the user is good and so on. And this is, have been more my path and less on the algorithmic side. There's been a lot of progress on the algorithmic, but I'm always being interested. What does it mean for the user? Are we retrieving the right things at the right time? And this journey is actually not finished. While we're growing the algorithm, we still keep on asking the questions. What does it mean to the users? Because search has grown now so much. Intranet, internet, e-commerce, music, shopping, and so on. And Intents are very different. Satisfaction are very different. So there's a lot of research still waiting to be done. It sounds so exciting and such a valid point that you bring up that the evaluation of the results almost is what will feed back into the algorithm to make it better. And one of the things that I, I know when I was looking up your previous work, the need to sort of measure was there even in a lot of the previous early work that you did. I know that you did a lot of work around measuring user engagement. And that was, again, pioneering at that time, just like you said, when, when search was sort of just coming up, the idea of providing 
content to users, consumption of content was growing. And so understanding how does a user stay engaged was really important. And you did some very, very incredible work around that. Do you remember sort of the key innovations at that time that felt like a paradigm shift in the field? That's a really interesting question. I could write a book about it. So there are two parts. There's the evaluation, which is the offline evaluation with very precise metrics, for example, area under the curve, precision and recall. Then there is the online evaluation where actually systems are running and we get actual feedback from the user with clicks, time spans, and so on. Earlier in the field of information literature, there was a lot of progress with the offline evaluation, also in the sense that precision and recall does not capture everything related to engagement, to satisfaction, and so on. And not just me, but a number of people have been working around that, trying to build better metrics, especially with respect to offline. Then going back to the online, it is different. Here is you have those concrete feedback from the user. And there's always this thing is if everybody click, it's a notion that the results are good and so on. And this worked for a while because it can be viewed more as a proxy of uh, user engagement. A lot of the metrics actually that we are, people refer to a proxy of engagement. But then there's always this question, what does it really mean in reality, the value of a click and so on? So this is where I started to be much more interested. So you have the offline, you have the online. There is a connection between those two. High precision does not mean that is going to lead to a long-term engagement. So those are the questions, not just myself, but many people at company and also at university start to really understand the connection. And to some extent, what was maybe the breakthrough is to ask those questions and to not just rely on metrics that everybody use and say, oh, well, my, I'm doing right, I've got the right precision and so on. So with the breakthrough is just to say, well, actually, what, what does it mean to have high precision? What does it mean to have high recall? What does it mean to have high click-through rate and so on? And by trying to ask this question, myself and others have come up with maybe better metrics to really understand, well, satisfaction means often user returning. And then if you agree with that, you try to find what are metrics that correlate with this. So it's really the thinking. Another thing that is also important is metrics. When people talk about metrics, both online and offline, they have to be very careful that the task that is being looked into has an impact of what the metrics mean. So, for example, social media, a good metric is people spending quite a lot of time on it, while search, it could be that the people just click on result and spend as little time. If the search results are good, the user find what they're looking for and just leave. So, again, this idea of metrics, of evaluation, and so on, is very specific to the task at hand. And the field of information retrieval, I would say, was one of the earlier ones to really look at this, at asking those questions. Precision and recall are still used, but we are using also a lot of other metrics. There's this new area, which is I'm not so much involved myself, which is conversational search. What is the metric? What is success? And so on. And being brought up as an information retrieval person, we constantly 
keep asking. So as long as we ask, we will make progress. Thank you for that, actually, because what you bring up is not something that we may always think about if we're not in the field, which is really the metric of success is different depending on the type of problem that you're trying to solve. And similarly, also looking at the impact that a metric has on what you're trying to solve for. For example, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about, which I know in the past I've also looked at, is there are so many other dimensions that are changing with how a user is interacting with the service that you're providing, whether that is search or whether that is reading content. What you initially may think of as the mode of engagement, maybe they're reading on a desktop versus now moving over, not now, but maybe a few years ago, moving over to and a device like a mobile phone, suddenly the kind of metrics that you're looking at are very different. Um, you may not get the same signals that you do with a desktop computer in terms of clicks, etc. Do you remember some of those shifts and what do you see as trends that are changing now in terms of the kind of metrics that people have to evaluate? A big change that is people try to incorporate when they measure success is user behavior. So, for example, on the desktop, it's very well known there is like above the fold. People don't go below. So everything has to be optimized for quite at the top of the pages or what is visible on on the desktop screen. This is not the case on a mobile phone. Scrolling down is much, much more common. So if you just look at scrolling down on desktop, and compare this to the phone, uh, if you just compare metrics without being aware those are different user behavior, then you just get completely the wrong results. And this changed a little bit what is viewed as success, for example, when reading news on desktop and reading news on mobile. For us, for example, just in the context of Spotify, so we have the mobile experience where we try to find a way to combine familiar content that the user wants to listen of into a particular artist, genre, and so on, and the, the other content which is more about discovery. And we take into account that people would browse to some extent up and down. And this allows you to investigate the value of metrics differently. So again, what I'm trying to say is user behavior has also a strong effect on the metrics and even if it's the same product. And sometimes you may keep the same metric. You may keep, okay, let's just keep at the moment click-through rates. But it has to be interpreted differently knowing it is desktop and knowing it is mobile or other kind of device. Another thing also, which it's related to, again, some of the work we have at Spotify. So we have playlists. Spotify has a lot of playlists. People go into them. And what is success of a playlist? And we have playlists that are made for people to fall asleep. And some are made for people maybe to do kind of party type environments. So a sleeping playlist, success means the user starts listening to that playlist and does not do much. That's the whole point of a sleeping playlist. While other playlists about songs that you may want to use to build a party playlist, there's going to be a lot of interaction and a lot of skip and so on. And this is success. The user is trying to act like a DJ and try to extract some track to create their own playlist. 
So again, even the same product, but two different parts of it, two different playlists with different intent, success is very different. And we, we are looking into how this is helping actually uh, building a better personalization at Spotify. Hopefully it gives you an idea that there's not one answer, it's user model, the application, and also sometimes going down to the item itself. Absolutely. I think that gives a lot of clarity, right? And um, the two things that you said there that I'd like to sort of maybe talk a little bit more about is one, of course, you're talking about personalizing the experience for the user, understanding the user's intent and possibly the context in which they're using the product. And one of the other things that you said, which is in some cases you are trying to optimize for discovery and in some cases you're trying to optimize for surfacing maybe new content. How do you strike a balance between those two? That is a good question. That is what we're working every day. So there's, there's various ways. Again, I'm talking about work we're doing at Spotify, not just research. A researcher work with engineers, product manager, designer. and So you can organize, for example, the front page in a way. This is for discovery. This is for the kind of things you're looking to do now. So that is one way you try to understand various needs. And because we have so many users and other online services in shopping and they have so many users, they get a good understanding what a general big needs, needs of uh, something novel, need of something to solve a problem that is just now. If you have enough of those identified intent needs, it's easy to even organize the front page, the home page accordingly. Now, the other thing is what do you, how does personalization work? Personalization is about trying to return to the user what is the most relevant to them. And of course, the definition of relevance is something that evolves. It could be, this is what you tend to listen to. We're going to give you more of this. But in the context of entertainment, and particularly in the context of music, we know that this is just not good enough. We have to feed the user, of course, with what they want to listen now. But this is always a journey. User will just evolve into that listening. And we can just decide, okay, there is a playlist. We may try to find a way to attract to it that is related to other tracks in that playlist, is related to what we think the user is likely to listen or not. And then you get signal back, did it work or it didn't work? And then from there, you can build better algorithm. It's a mixture of what is called in the bandit area, ex- kind of explore exploits, although the definition there are a bit more technical. is like, Try to provide to the user what they need now, but try also to show other things. And it could be something as simple. Maybe 10% of the time, I'm going to give to the user something that is a bit different. And from then, you start to get some signals. Does it work? Does it not work? And then you can build also better algorithm to incorporate those signals back. It's an exploration by itself. In the context of music, I think we are lucky that many users are on a discovery journey they change into what they listen. They may listen to something quite a lot now, but at some point they will want something else. So I think we have more room to push more discovery. It doesn't mean it is easy. It's not just, I'm going to give you something completely random. No, it's just to find the right level. We're also trying to understand how our user ready to receive 
a more different, diverse content. You know, some people are just pretty happy to listening to a particular type of things, and this is perfectly all right. Some people are more open, and we can look into this by just looking at their listening behavior. Do they listen to very diverse sets of, for example, genre and so on, or is it very, very specific? This is this notion of going to understanding the users, understanding the content, understanding and acknowledging that we have to find a way to give the right content, but in somewhat injecting into it something a little bit different. We can do that explicitly. For example, at Spotify, we have Discover Weekly, which is this playlist every Monday, which is about new content. Or we can do it by why the user is listening. Okay, maybe having some track or some song that are a little bit different. They haven't listened to that particular artist that is close enough to, for example, what the session is about. So we try those various ways and we're learning from there. And again, at the end, those are signals that we take back, understand, fed back into algorithms, allow us to build better algorithms and so on. It's funny because I heard from, of course, I have teenage daughters who use Spotify and they absolutely enjoy it. And you're often touted to be able to, quote unquote, read the mind of your user. And what you're talking about is incredible because it seems like a lot of the work you're doing is really to understand what does my user need and providing them that. And also, like you mentioned, music is probably an area which lends itself well to a little bit of exploration and discovery. But there's going back to this idea behind reading the user's mind, you know, it feels like Spotify is able to give the user what they're seeking at that time. How do you achieve that? Like, I mean, is that a very conscious mission that you are sort of using as your North Star as you go down your you know, paths of research or product ideas? Well, of course, we're not going to tell you our secret, <laughs> but, we, <laughs> but again, music is not new. People relate to music. Group of people relate to music. People listen to music together. We have editors that are expert in some particular type of music. So we know that what people want in the morning on Monday is very different to what they want on Friday evening. So there's a lot of knowledge that comes from experts in music. So this is why we have playlists that have been, that are created exactly for that. Uh, We have playlists for, again, lullaby, sleeping, yoga, the gym, and so on. And working with experts, they just know what they're doing. Now, the second part is, imagine a playlist about happy music or sad music what makes me happy may not be what another person feels oh this is a happy song or this is a sad song and so on and this is where the personalization come into account so from this oh this is sad music this is happy music this is running music so how do we personalize to, for example, artists, genre, or beats, and so on, that is specific to the user. So it's combining a little bit what we refer to as human in the loop and the, the algorithm to bring this together. And by doing this, it looks like we're reading the mind of the user, which is good. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I like the phrase that you say, human in the loop, and to bring that extra level of sort of intelligence into these recommendations. So in terms of personalization research, Munia, what are the common 
computing problems that you're trying to solve or what maybe the industry is really looking at right now? There's a number of them. And for example, a lot of um, algorithms are not yet scalable. So we may come with the best algorithm, whether us in the research or in, in academia and so on. And then it has to be scalable. Users do not wait much for a search result. And so there's this notion is this really, really, really good algorithm that works really, really well. We need to make it scalable. And by scalable, it's also to be reactive. It's like, okay, suddenly we have a lot of signals that are a little bit different. How does the algorithms react to it? So this is also the aspect related to the scalability. A big area that is at Spotify, but also elsewhere, is explanation and interpretability, transparency. Those algorithms are really optimizing in general, always for the next click. Sometimes not much explanation. There's a whole area with bias. And there's a lot of research around this at Spotify, but also uh, elsewhere. By just letting the algorithm running on their own, there's a lot of problems happening and it's important to address them. The other thing, which is a little bit related to this, is to move from, again, talking a little bit more machine learning jargon, is what those algorithms are trying to do is to optimize for a metric, for an objective function, then to be like click-through rate, just the click, optimize for the next click. And it's, it's very well known that this is good for the moment, but it's not good long-term. It's a hard question. How do we know that what we're trying to optimize for now is good long-term? So some of the research we have done is people that have a more diverse listening tend to stay longer, for example, on Spotify. So it's important, for again, going back to this recovery. So it's not just about optimizing for the next click, but it's optimizing for the long, what we call the long-term user satisfaction. And we're not there yet which is kind of exciting because this is it's often also going back to my passion, which is metrics and user engagement. And at Spotify, how we are proposing to go into this is to rethink how we do the optimization and we are investing in one particular technology, which is reinforcement learning, because we believe it will allow us to do that, while also allowing us to be interpret the various models transparency and those are challenges but they are challenges that many are trying to address now and this is one of our focus at from the personalization perspective not just the next listening behavior the long-term listening behavior and this is what will make personalization more successful yeah i like how you tied it together in terms of you know the work that you're doing in personalization but taking it back to the work that you do in user engagement not just looking for user engagement in the near term but really the long term behavior that uh, you know you're trying to optimize for that's great one of the things munia also wanted to touch upon is just in terms of your career you've spent a lot of time as you had said earlier doing research in both academia as well as in industry and in industry when you're working for you know, a research organization or heading one up like you do, how do you strike the balance between optimizing for what is bringing business value versus researching for the ability to actually do groundbreaking work? I know it's a discussion that has happened oftentimes, which is like, how do you balance the two worlds? What is your philosophy around that? 
that's a very, very, very good question. It's a question that many research organizations always keep asking themselves, revisit and so on. The way we, we're doing it, and my answer is going to be maybe very, very Spotify specific, we are trying to address challenge that is relevant to Spotify product. At the moment, this is what we, we were doing. For example, how do you optimize for long-term and short-term? And we have the support of the product, the engineer, and so on. So we're working with them. So we are trying to make better product, better algorithm, better methodology to for evaluation purpose. So this is... We do research to improve the product or to build a better product. And as a byproduct of this, we, for example, publish. Also, we publish also with our colleagues that are not necessarily in research. But it, it is a bit of a challenge. It's a bit of a balance. We are lucky there are a lot of really, really interesting research problems at Spotify. So we can jump on many. And this has allowed us to really help on various occasions and so on. So it maybe... It's the right time, the way we work now, and our contribution has been very much valued. At the same time, because those are often maybe not necessarily brand new problem, but they're new in the context of audio listening. So that's why there's a good choice of research that needs to be done. And this is very much valued by the product team, by the business so that is our current philosophy. Whether it will be the philosophy in two years' time, I don't know. But I can still add that there is this investment in reinforcement learning. We know this is going to be, not tomorrow, but it's going to be a journey, a few years. And what we're trying to understand is where do we want to be, for example, in five years, which technology and how do we progress toward this, for example, this vision. So we always try to define the long-term research needs into steps. And this allows us to come up earlier with proof of concept. Okay, this is good. This is less good. Okay, let's move this way and not this way. And finally, is to continually discuss with the business what the research is doing and not just to work on our own with no communication with product team. So hopefully it gives you a little bit how we're trying to make it work, but it's likely that we evolve as we grow. But at the moment, this is how it works and it's working pretty well. Yeah, I like how you say that. I mean, you know, iterate through the ideas that you have, but also get the validation working closely with a product or an engineering team to see, you know, if you're actually sort of moving in the right direction, but also fuel the needs of research in this area, which is so nascent in and of itself. But I know, Munya, that one of the other things I wanted to definitely talk to you about was you have a lot of interactions that happen, you know, in the community overall, right? You do participate in conferences, you're on various committees. One of the things I read about the work that you've done around the um, initiative for XML retrieval, you co-led that project. I'm just curious, you know, why was it important for you to do that? And what do you think is the value that you get from these industry sort of engagement and participation? 
So this is going back to me, information retrieval researcher, interested in evaluation. Evaluation is very big, again, in information retrieval. We have the track initiative, which is like every year with a number of tasks, people building test collection, how to evaluate and how to compare approaches. So we know how everybody or how the state of the art is advancing in a number of areas. For this one, Ilex, we were discussing a particular problem, which is uh, at that time, it was XML was a big thing. Everything was going to be represented uh, with the XML format. And then there was this notion, we don't need to return the whole document, but we need to return just a bit of the document. And we found out pretty quickly that the way we did evaluation with precision and recall just didn't work out. And It was interesting. A lot of people got interested into that area, like research, they always go into phases. At some point, this is a popular problem people are trying to solve. So we had the opportunity to kind of build a group, which was international across the globe, coming both from industry and academia to try to solve this problem. I work on XML retrieval. We call it focus retrieval. How do I know that my system is, my approach is doing well? By doing this, help us really to make progress together. So it was not one person deciding that's the way to do it. But they also allowed to build a strong community among people interested in a particular research area. It also allowed master student and PhD students to take a topic that for their dissertation contribute to it, were able also to validate their work and so on. Without that, they would not have been able to validate. Having a mixture of academia and industry is, is always good. Industry bring perspective that maybe in academia we're not very much aware of. Those are the those are the constraints we're having, those are the questions we're having and so on. Those are so sometimes the data sets that we're having. And it's to try to Again, conversation is everything, okay? And academia often come with very, very strong models, but scalability become an issue and all those kind of things. So having those conversations allowed us to really make a good progress in this particular area, but also to bring a strong community of researchers that now are still all over the world in various places, in academia and industry. We should also view research as an education, especially people based in academia is growing the next researcher. And those initiatives like TREC and INEX and so on allow also to do that. There's also the education part, which I'm also passionate about. I can tell just by the passion with which you speak of this and the tremendous value that it brings, not just you, but the community overall. How does one find these opportunities? How does one engage, whether it's somebody early in their career or somebody who's in industry or academia? What would you suggest? Be open. I don't like this word, but it is an important word. Is find a way to network to understand what are the opportunities. So it's again networking, but networking with the purpose. It's important to know what is out there. Identify important research area. And if it's a student, this will happen partly by being part of a group in a university, a research group. If it's an industry, it will be a combination of what are the needs of the business and what is happening outside and so on. So again, it's go back to this 
conversation, ask questions, attending important events like some of the conferences and discuss and discuss and discuss and discuss at things which we used to do in my early, early, early age is to organize workshops. So if there's a particularly area that is of interest, especially if it's a bit multidisciplinary, a bit of metrics, a bit of machine learning, a bit of design and so on, organize workshop around this because then we one can bring experts and really also start to build an understanding of what one can do for the career, maybe the next one, two, three years or longer term and so on. So again, there's a lot going back to this conversation, talking to people and Organizing workshop is a great way to really learn a lot because also it pushes us to do this networking maybe in a more constrained way. Thank you for those, you know, those are very practical and actionable tips. I'm sure that our listeners will really appreciate. So Munya, what do you do outside of work? What are your hobbies or what are your passions? I have mostly two. I used to like doing a lot of weight training in the past, but I damaged my back and it took me a while to be able to replace it. So I have started yoga a bit more than a year ago. And especially with the pandemic, you can't do much. So and a lot of the yoga went all online. So I really took it seriously. And this is becoming a hobby to the point I'm starting reading books about the value of yoga. It's both about the actual yoga exercise, but the kind of well-being, spirituality that comes into it. And people who knows me know that I really like Prosecco. I won't call it as a hobby or passion, but it's something that I like very much. That's great. And and the the part that you bring up about well-being is so important in these times especially. This has been an excellent conversation, Munia. For our final bite, I'd love to understand what are you most excited about in the field of personalization research or information retrieval, the areas that you're interested in? What excites me is, so you have information retrieval, you have this whole area, which is very related, but still different uh, recommender system. You have also voice, how people now interact with online system, if you put this into ecosystem. So personalization is very much about the user. User has a need or user wants to get things done or want to listen to something. And we forget the content provider. And for example, in the context of Spotify, are the, the artist. And, and so that's what I call the ecosystem. And all this, it's all related to what I refer to downstream interaction. Interaction is not just a click, it's a relationship in the context of at least Spotify, but it's also elsewhere between the user, a user and content. And there's various ways. The interaction is evolving. We have now the whole area of conversation. And so it's like now it's we're trying to not evaluate a click or an approach. We're trying to evaluate how user interact with content in during the journey and this is just fascinating because success is not just now it's a success of a journey and i'm looking very much forward and i'm already starting to look into this is what does the success of a journey mean and this is super super exciting at least for me i think you know what you say is is relevant of course in the field of personalization research but overall as well there's so much depth to that statement 
success of a journey. Munia, thank you so much for speaking to us at ACM Bytecast. We thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much. ACM Bytecast is a production of the Association for Computing Machinery's Practitioners Board. To learn more about ACM and its activities, visit acm.org. For more information about this and other episodes, please visit our website at learning.acm.org slash bytecast. That's learning.acm.org slash b-y-t-e-c-a-s-t.